All right, so um, there is a uh, spot on a religious website called Pathios. I don't know if any of you have ever read an article on there. There's articles from all different kinds of religions, and apparently there's a spot called the Friendly Atheist. So representing the atheists on that website. And there was a guest writer who wrote this. Some Christians are aware of the absurd laws that are described in the Old Testament, such as being sentenced to death if you work on the Sabbath, or for children to be killed for cursing their parents. They usually say that the Old Testament has been superseded by the New Testament and therefore no longer applies. This is despite the fact Jesus emphatically said the opposite. It goes without saying that a Christian has no authority to pick and choose which scriptures he will follow. Either they all apply or none of them do. Anybody ever thrown that at you? Or have you ever wondered how we're supposed to relate to the Old Testament, whether it applies or not? Have you ever, like, had a crisis of faith when you hit Leviticus? <laughs> As you read the Bible, like, what in the world do I do with this? Weird laws. Do you just kind of sweep that stuff under the rug and, like, move on? Like, okay, ignorance is bliss. I'm just going to forget about that and ignore it. Does it apply to us? How can we say some things apply or continue to apply from the Old Testament and others don't? Are we cherry-picking? So I was on a plane one time and struck up conversation with the guy next to me, and he was a Jew. And we get talking about the Bible, talking about the gospel, and most of his questions to me surrounded these issues. So how can God say one thing in the Old Testament and then Jesus come and undo or change some of those things? I mean, did God, like, grow in his understanding? Did he change his mind? And how can God make, you can put yourself in his shoes, how can God make food laws, you know, dietary restriction laws, and then revoke them? How can God make such a foundational statement as keep the Sabbath and, it, and call it a perpetual statute? And then Jesus comes on the scene and seems to act like, you know, he's above the law. So how do we understand all this stuff? What do you do with all those weird commands? Like, don't mix threads, you know? Any of you, your clothes, I think you're all guilty, you know? What does that mean? On what basis can we dismiss or ignore or leave behind some of these commands? We can't just pick and choose, like designer religion, well, I like this one, I don't like that one. Or do we just kind of explain it away with this vague, well, that's the Old Testament. Or, we're not under the law anymore. Well, the first half of our passage actually addresses these questions. Um, so, the first half, I think, can be really helpful for us as we embrace the consistency and the truth of Christianity intellectually. It's not just an intellectual exercise. The second half of our passage this morning is probably going to like be the Holy Spirit putting the finger on, on our heart at a deep level 
and convicting every one of us. So we need help for both things. We need help to wrestle with some, you know, things that might challenge our minds, and we need help as the Lord convicts our hearts um, in the second half of our passage. Okay, so if you're not there already, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 26. Okay, so we're doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and taking it kind of a section at a time, and so this morning we've got verses 17 to 26. So after the Beatitudes, all these statements of blessing and this call to be salt and light that we looked at last week, now Jesus is going to make this statement in verses 17 to 20 that is incredibly important for the flow of the whole passage of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, So if you zoom out a little bit, 17 to 20 is, in a sense, a nutshell, a summary, and then of, of why he came and what he's here to do. And then you have six examples of the point that he makes in the rest of chapter 5. So he's going to say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. Let me unpack what I mean. So you may never literally murder someone, but the righteousness I'm after is a heart righteousness that deals with anger. You may never commit physical adultery, but I'm actually after changing your heart and dealing with your lusts. So you might not commit physical adultery, but you could be filled with lust. So I'm actually going after your heart. And he goes on with four more of those examples. The last one is loving our enemies. Okay? So this is an important heading over the next several weeks, and also it's an important heading over the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, because flip ahead to chapter 12. If you don't see this, this verse kind of seems like it's coming in out of nowhere. So Matthew 7, 12 says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So that's like a bookend. And the other bookend on the front end is 517. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Okay, and so everything in between 5.17 and 7.12 is the working out of the law and the prophets. What are the law and the prophets about? Love God and love your neighbor. And so it's fleshing that out. All right, so that's a little bit of orientation, kind of helicopter, big picture view. Now let's drill down in and look at chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. We start with... Um, the first point here, there's an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful for you. The, the slides will also have the points up there. All right, so Jesus came to fulfill, verses 17 and 18. So Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I just think we need to stop here for a second because we can be too familiar with the Bible and really earth-shaking stuff just kind of goes right over our heads or in one ear out the other. Imagine being there, Jesus is teaching the disciples. He's a man, like real flesh and bone, and he just said, I have come to fulfill 
the law and the prophets. Like, that's a shocking claim. That's a crazy claim. Who do you think you are? Okay, we just read right past that. So don't just read right past that. It's crazy stuff. (laughs) So he's either a crazy man, and we should go eat brunch right now, or he's really God in the flesh, and that changes everything. All right, so I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Just looks like this. Like that. So that's not going to pass away. A dot is likely referring to a tiny stroke that would distinguish between two Hebrew letters. Okay? Like there's a little point. There's this thing that looks like a W, and one is called a sin, and one is called a sheen, and one sounds like s, and one sounds like sh, and the only difference is a dot. Okay? So none of that passes away until everything is accomplished. So he's anticipating what he's going to say in 521 to 48, because what is he going to say? You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. So what are you doing? Are you coming in and just like wiping out all the law and the prophets? No, 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 no. I'm not here to abolish them. I'm here to fulfill them. So do you see how this is setting up what he's going to do in the rest of chapter 5? But what are we going to make of this? So You know, Jesus declares all foods clean. He seemed to disregard the Sabbath at times. So wasn't Jesus lax on the law? I mean, he got that from the Pharisees. They accused him of that. I mean, was Jesus saying that the Old Testament, you know, is like JV, ethics of God, and then he kind of matured or mellowed out? You know, he's not so angry anymore. And the New Testament's like the varsity ethics. You've heard, but I say. No, no. Verse 18 makes that really clear. Jesus is taking the Old Testament very seriously. So we can't be sloppy in our interpretation. He's not playing fast and loose with what's already been revealed. He's not here to abolish it. He's here to actually fulfill it. So what does all that mean? Well, first, think through. And this is going back to that comment on you know, the atheist, friendly atheist site, how do you actually address that? Well, first, think through the holiness code, clean and unclean, keeping kosher, stuff like that. The people of God in the Old Testament were supposed to be holy. They were supposed to be set apart, right? But there was a problem. They were no different in here than the nations. They were, like, incredibly stubborn, Right? So God actually sets up a sacrificial system to deal with that sin and also a symbolic holiness to set them apart from the nations. So a symbolic holiness code is by its very nature provisional and temporary until the fulfillment comes. So clean laws... Does that mean you can literally clean your soul if you wash your hands enough? No, it's symbolic. It's provisional, right? Food laws, same thing. Setting them apart. 
But holiness was not set aside when Jesus came and declared all foods clean. No, it's because he was coming to actually make us holy and clean from the inside out. And so he's bringing the fulfillment of what in the Old Testament was symbolic and provisional. Okay, so symbolic holiness is replaced by true holiness. So yeah, we don't have to worry about mixed threads anymore. But that's not because the Old Testament doesn't matter. It's because a symbolic holiness has been replaced with true holiness, changing us from the inside out. Circumcision, same thing. You could be a Jew, but not really a Jew, right? So later on in the Old Testament, it talks about circumcision of the heart because what you really need is the heart deadness to be cut away so that you can actually be alive to God. So the law and the prophets are provisional. They're signposts. They're pointing ahead to the future fulfillment that Jesus is going to bring. And he doesn't just fulfill prophecy, like in the sense of, you know, the virgin's going to be, you know, with child and you'll name him Emmanuel, God with us. He also fulfills the law. What, what does that mean? Well, look back at Matthew chapter 2. This one kind of strange example here. So birth of Jesus, Matthew 2, 14. Because of Herod, they flee to Egypt. And then they're coming back. Verse 14, Joseph rises, takes the child and his mother by night, departs to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, right? He didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill, to accomplish. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. What? How does that apply to Jesus? Okay, so again, I told you the first half is going to be kind of more wrestling with these things intellectually, okay? So hang with me here. This is referring to the Exodus, calling the Son of God, the people of God were referred to as His Son, okay? Out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, right? So unfortunately, the Son of God was unfaithful. They grumbled in the wilderness. They fell in the wilderness. They were judged, right? So Jesus is the true Son of God who comes, and he actually spent some time in the wilderness too, didn't he? Forty days, 40 years, see the connection? And he was victorious. Out of Egypt I called my Son. So it's like the pattern of the Exodus being recapitulated, redone. Because Jesus is like, Adam failed, Israel failed, the Son of God failed, the Son of God failed, and now the Son of God is going to not fail. Do you see? So this pattern is being fulfilled, and Jesus is bringing a better and greater exodus. The ultimate freedom and deliverance is coming through him. So do you see how he fulfills even these patterns and types in the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, okay? So the fact that Jesus came to fulfill the law doesn't only mean that he lived a sinless life and always kept the law, though that's true. It means also that he fulfilled the entire sacrificial system, atonement. It all pointed ahead to Jesus who made 
atonement once and for all for our sins. The priesthood. Don't need the priesthood anymore because Jesus is the high priest and he made the full and final sacrifice. Don't actually need the temple anymore. What's the temple? It's where God meets with people. Jesus is how we have our sins atoned for and are reconciled to God, right? He even said, destroy this temple, my body, and I'll rebuild it in three days. The mercy seat, same thing, atonement. This is, Jesus fulfills all of this. So the entire sacrificial system is made up of shadows and signposts that point ahead to their fulfillment. So Jesus didn't come to abolish any of that. He came to fulfill it. It's why the curtain was torn from top to bottom when he died on the cross, opening the way to the Holy of Holies so that we could have access to God. We can pray to him anytime, anywhere. We don't need a mediator. He is our mediator. So he's the great high priest. He's the perfect and final sacrifice. So, of course, he eventually rendered obsolete these things that were provisional right? And temporary. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament priesthood was worthless. It doesn't abolish it and make it, you know, invalid in a, like, what a waste of time. No. The point is, it all pointed ahead to him. He fulfilled it. And so now, it's in the rearview mirror. The sign has been replaced by the substance. The sign isn't worthless. He didn't abolish it in that sense, but it's obsolete. So, it's fulfilled. Okay? So do you see how there's like built-in temporariness to certain aspects of the law? It was provisional from the get-go. It's kind of like, like GPS. Okay? So think about it this way. If you're traveling to visit a long-lost friend, okay? you got your trust, trusty GPS you know, up on your little thingy, and once you get there, what do you do with your GPS? You set it down. You stick it in your pocket because the whole point is it's intended to get you to your destination. You want to see your friend. Once you see your friend, you don't need the GPS anymore. Okay? It's fulfilled its purpose. And the very fact that it's fulfilled its purpose this, like, changes your relationship with the GPS in that moment. Okay? You leave it behind and you embrace what it was for, what it was leading you to. So, Old Testament is like that, so much of it. All right. So, <clears throat> signpost, a good thing, but only a signpost points ahead to the destination. So that's why it would be silly to return to the shadows when the substance has been given to us. This is why the book of Hebrews is written, okay? Because those Jews were starting to slide back into the shadows, and away from the substance. They were drifting, okay? So as one commentator noted, he said, for Matthew then, it's not the question of Jesus's relation to the law that is in doubt, but rather the question is the law's relation to him. He's the reference point. So the law is getting fulfilled by him. It all pointed to him, not only by way of prophecy, but also by way of law and patterns and types. Okay? Remember at the end of the Gospel of Luke, um, after the resurrection, you know, he makes breakfast on the beach and says to the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about 
me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Crazy, crazy statement. Again, he's either nuts or we bow down. He is Lord and God and Savior. Okay, so I'm the one to whom it all appoints, or all points, Jesus is saying. How could I possibly abolish that which is pointing to me as its fulfillment? That would be self-defeating if I did that. Okay, so there we go. You can see how that is important to grasp if we're going to be able to answer questions like that atheist asks or wrestle with how the Old Testament applies to us as we read through it. Um, let's say Leviticus or wherever else, okay? But it's also important in the context here as it sets up what he's going to say. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, okay? So Jesus comes to fulfill, not abolish. Point number two, he does that so that we might also fulfill the law. Look at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So obviously Jesus is taking the law and righteousness seriously, very seriously, that's the nature of his kingdom. And if we are going to follow him, if we are going to be a part of his kingdom, we have to take these things seriously. So this is a little confusing, though. I mean, if you look at these, what is he talking about? The least of these commandments, relaxing them, you know, called least in the kingdom. So most likely when Jesus is referring to the least of these commandments, He's not only referring to commandments in the Old Testament. He's referring also to all that he is commanding. Okay, so Jesus is the king. He's bringing the kingdom. We can't take any of his commands lightly. That's what he's saying. So we dare not play fast and loose with any of his commands, not even the least of his commandments. You know, we probably don't talk about it that way, but there is a whole tradition in Judaism of distinguishing between weightier and lighter commands. Okay, remember when Jesus was asked, what's the most important command, commandment in the law? And how did he answer? Go ahead. I know it's warm in here. What? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? All the law and the prophets hang on this. Okay? So that's weighty. Or, if you flip ahead to Matthew 23, Matthew 23 is actually a really important chapter in parallel with what we're looking at in Matthew 5. Um, but just note verse 23. Matthew 23, 23. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe your spices, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So do you see how he doesn't relax even the quote-unquote lighter commands? Okay, so we've got to do what Jesus says, not merely hear it, 
And we're called to teach others to do the same. I mean, that's the commission he gave us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Okay, it all matters. So Tyler read from James 1 and 2, right? The end of chapter 1. We're warned to not merely hear the word, but to hear and do the word and respond. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So Jesus is not kidding when he goes on in verse 20 to say, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have been shocking. First century hearers are like, I, who can get in? Because they're like the holiest people around. They keep all the rules. They were scrupulous in their obedience to the law. But Jesus is speaking of a qualitative difference in righteousness. Okay? He exposes the reality of their so-called righteousness later on. Again, chapter 28 or 23. You don't have to turn there, but verse 28 so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, he's saying to the Pharisees, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So do you see he's going for the heart? Not just external compliance to commands, but righteousness from the inside out, okay? Heart level, true heart righteousness, and he is going to expose our hearts here, folks, okay? So we just finished the kind of headier section and now we're going to go to the heart and listen. This is sobering, okay? Let's not shrink back. Let's trust Jesus and, you know, even when he kind of presses in on our hearts here, okay? So the first of these six antitheses, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, is about anger. Verses 21 to 26, all right? So first, verse 21, you have heard. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus does not say it is written. He says you have heard. Because what he wants to do is not be confused to be challenging the Mosaic law. He wants them to, to, to realize he's challenging the oral tradition that oftentimes went beyond what God had said or fell short of what God intended, okay? So he's focusing on the oral tradition of the Pharisees. He's challenging their understanding and application of the law. He's not contradicting Moses, okay? He just said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, okay? So the point is that you could certainly be one who's refrained from literally murdering, murdering another person, but that doesn't mean you're righteous before God, in fact, you could be someone who's never even raised your voice at someone, let alone your fist or a weapon, but you could be filled with unrighteousness, hate and anger and just contempt for other people. So we can't miss the point of the commandments. We can't be minimalists and relax the commands Instead, we've got to go to the heart of the matter, following Jesus, 
and live from the inside out. That's how he wants to change us. Which brings us to Jesus' explanation of the heart of the matter then. Point number four here. Verse 22. So he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's the same consequence as murdering, right? You see, back in 21, we'll be liable to judgment. 22, we'll be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, some people see like a an increase, a gradation, you know, it's getting more and more serious. Um, it may be that it's just three different ways of saying the same thing, judgment, counsel, hell of fire. The point is, this is serious, okay? That's, you know, without question, the case here. So Jesus is saying, I say to you, the emphasis on the I, I mean, this is shocking. <laughs> You've heard that it said, but I say to you, like, I am the authoritative lawgiver. I am the authoritative interpreter of the law. Again, just imagine yourself there, back then, listening to this man. You don't know yet that he's literally God in the flesh. It's this rabbi, this teacher. It just reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said. He says, Christ says that he's humble and meek, and we believe him. Not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Like, these are serious words and serious claims he's making here. So we need to make sure our familiarity doesn't blind us to what's being said. We need to hear these again maybe for the first time. So listen carefully to the heart of the matter. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother, brother or sister, shall be liable to judgment. James 4.2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Same thing, heart-level murder, character assassination, slander, gossip. It's murderous violence. Then he says, whoever says to his brother, um, let's see, literally it's raka. It's an Aramaic word. Um, Whoever insults his brother, so basically, literally it says, whoever calls him raka, okay, which doesn't mean anything to us because we don't know Aramaic, but it means empty. So the meaning in the modern vernacular would be something like blockhead, airhead, bonehead, 
Okay? Anybody guilty yet? Like, so it's a term of contempt, insulting someone's intelligence. Whoever says you fool, which has moral religious overtones, the fool says in his heart there's no God, right? So the issue is not so much just stupid. It's that you're worthless and morally void. So this is the heart of the matter. But I say to you, don't think the fact that you haven't killed anybody literally that you're fine. Anger and contempt for our brothers and sisters is an issue with eternal consequences. This is not an isolated idea in the Bible. First John, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. First John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't leave it at just the external? Because if we thought we were fine, and yet we're actually murderers in our hearts, and he just let us be, that wouldn't be loving. No, he wants to set us free. So we cannot take our anger lightly. We say this stuff so easily. I think, I think it's like, we, we just dismiss this. We're so used to throwing these kind of things out that we just, oh, that's not realistic. Like, seriously, they really want us to care about what we say? To? Yeah. We should not treat our brothers or sisters with contempt. Our heart has to change or we will go to hell. Remember what Jesus said when he first started preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to change. Okay? But repentance is what turns on the flow of God's grace. <laughs> he came to rescue angry, selfish, looking down on everybody else, sinners like you and me. So do you remember in Luke 18, there's that picture of the Pharisee and the tax collector? And the Pharisee's praying, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I fast, I do this, I give my money to the poor. Thank, th thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. He's looking down on him with contempt. And that guy knew what a sinner he was, how spiritually bankrupt he was, and he, didn't even, he couldn't even look up to heaven. He's down on his knees, beating his chest. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And then Jesus said, who went home righteous, justified? It's the guy on his knees. So this is not like, well, if you're not perfect, sorry for you. You know, you're all going to hell. The point is, we come into the kingdom sh by sheer mercy. <laughs> God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Like, we are all wretched and in need of just absolutely undeserved mercy and forgiveness and cleansing from all of our sin. We're filled with this stuff. 
But Jesus can rescue us from this stuff, cleanse us from this stuff. You, if you came in here and you're not a Christian, you can walk out here a Christian simply by saying, God have mercy on me, an unrighteous sinner. He's that merciful and gracious. He can save like that. But when he saves, if we're going to follow him, his people are people who change from the inside out. So he's saying to his disciples, to those who are following him, listen, I'm going to change you from the inside out. This heart work is going to hurt. (laughs) And you need to look at the mirror and not run away. Remember what you look like and respond. Okay, so we got to trust Jesus in this and not run. So, are we going to follow him? Follow him in this because there's some application now. We've dealt with the heart of the matter, but I say to you, and now there's some application. Verses 23 to 26. It comes in two parts. So, verse 23, if you were offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Maybe some of you just need to walk out right now. That would be totally fine because you need to go make a phone call. Look at this. If, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so you're coming to worship, you know, at that time there's still an altar. There was still a temple. So you remember that your brother has something against you. Does that mean that you genuinely sinned against him? It, Jesus doesn't seem to make an issue of that. The issue is that there's this unreconciled thing going on. This is like really sobering, kind of serious standard here, isn't it? Leave your gift there before the altar. Go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So in light of the relational consequences, there is urgency and importance for reconciliation. We should be saying, Lord, put to death my sinful Anger. There is righteous anger. We'll talk about that in a minute. Put that to death. I want to be a loving person. Put a guard over my mouth so that I'm not saying just flippant, demeaning, tearing down sort of things to my brothers and sisters. And when there's, you know, a breakdown in relationship because I've sinned or they've sinned or not, and the Lord brings to mind... When you bring to mind by your spirit, ah, they've got something against me. So far as it depends on you, you can't always accomplish reconciliation because the other person may not be willing. or they. Be, but so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So this is really sobering stuff. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. D.A. Carson writes, we love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it.
So this kind of reconciliation is more important and urgent in God's eyes than really anything else you could do this morning. And you know what? God is the God of our memories. The Spirit of God dwelling within us may be bringing something, someone to mind right now, and that's exactly what you need to do to follow Jesus this morning is to seek that reconciliation. Again, there are certainly instances where that is not possible. So far as it depends on you, it's just not possible. But, but we are really prone to letting little things and, and even medium-sized things, slights, and, you know, they didn't, they offended me when they said this, and, you know, that was annoying, and I can't believe, and, and then we just are okay holding this grudge or, or being bitter and just hanging on to it and not making any effort to reconcile. And we, we're, we're angry. Jesus doesn't need our sacrifice. He says to obey is better than sacrifice. So trust me. Leave the gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. And then come and worship me. So that's in light of the relational consequences application. And then lastly, in light of the personal consequences, again, urgency is here. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. So there's some discussion and disagreement as to whether this is a parable, kind of making, again, just a simple point about the urgency, like do it now, don't wait, or if it's focused on the personal consequences and cost. Either way, the focus is on urgency and the importance of dealing with it now, okay? It's, there, is, there comes a point where it's too late. So it's important, it's urgent, and so the question is, does that importance and urgency reside in your heart? And will that importance and urgency translate into action? So I remember one time, you know, I don't even know if I was serving communion. This is back at the church in, in Chicago, like leaving during communion to go make a phone call. It's okay. This is, God can give you grace if you're scared, like nervous to even think about it. God can give grace for that. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So sobering standard, but let's follow Jesus in this. Okay, this obviously does not mean that we never get angry. Okay, there is righteous anger. We should not be okay with injustice and, and sin and abuse and all kinds of things like that. Okay? There are times when Jesus burned with anger. But where this is personal offense, a bruised ego, Jesus is really clear what we need to do with this. We are oftentimes quick to anger when we're personally slighted and offended and slow to anger when injustice and wrong in the lives of others is done 
Sometimes we shrink back from that. It's kind of the same thing, looking two different ways. Same root, two different ways above ground. So the king has come here. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And if we're going to follow him, it's going to cost us everything. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But if it's worth it, he aims to remake us by his grace from the inside out because he wants to make us into people who love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbors, our brothers and sisters as ourselves with sincerity and devotion. Let's pray. So Lord, you know every heart and you know our minds and our thoughts right now and I pray that you would help each of us to be honest with ourselves and with you and with others that we may need to reach out to. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear the call to repent as a loving grace from you. You want to set us free from what enslaves us and you want to free us and empower us to live loving Christ-like lives. So help us to follow you. Help us to trust you. And I pray that you would continue to work your life-changing grace into us from the inside out that we would treasure the righteousness that is ours as a gift in the courtroom of heaven that comes only by faith. We have been pardoned forevermore. We don't have to work our way in. We don't have to prove anything. But I pray that that relationship and that grace would get worked out now in practical righteousness of the heart that goes public with our speech and our actions and our relationships. So help us to yield to you now as your spirit searches our hearts and convicts us and shows us how we need to respond to you. And I ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.